Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, November 2nd, 2023, the 1016th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So today we are going to move away from the Israel issue for the most part and focus back on some domestic stuff. And I want to start with the announcements from two establishment Republicans that they will not seek another term in Congress. The first, 
being Kay Granger. This is from KERA News in North Texas. Kay Granger is a longtime congresswoman from the Fort Worth area. The headline from Tuesday, Kay Granger confirms she won't run again for Congress. Granger, 80, decided some time ago that she did not want to run for a 15th two-year term, according to multiple sources who spoke on condition of anonymity so as to allow the lawmaker to make the announcement herself. And that was word coming out Tuesday night that Granger had decided to retire. She announced officially yesterday, Wednesday, saying, as I announced my decision not to seek reelection, I am encouraged by the next generation of leaders in my district. This is what she wrote in an email on Wednesday. It's time for the next generation to step up and take the mantle and be a strong and fierce representative for the people. Granger represents Texas's 12th congressional district, which covers western Tarrant County and much of Parker County. She is the chair of the powerful House Appropriations Committee, which is responsible for funding most of the federal government's activities. And that, of course, is notable because the Congress funding the federal government's activities is what has caused most of the drama over the past month or so with Kevin McCarthy being removed as speaker and ultimately being replaced by Mike Johnson. Granger played a key role as part of a group of 20 Republicans who blocked Representative Jim Jordan from becoming speaker. She supported Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson's successful race for the spot. So Granger was one of the rhinos making sure that Jim Jordan would not be elected. She was a no vote through those three rounds of voting for Jordan's potential speakership. And then when the conference decided to vote unanimously for Mike Johnson, so as not to disclose who the holdouts were, who the people were who were going along with Kevin McCarthy's plan to subvert all of these speaker nominees and hopefully by default make himself the speaker again, or so the story goes. At that point, Kay Granger decided to go in with all the rest of the Republicans and vote for Mike Johnson's candidacy. Back to the article. As chair of the Appropriations Committee, Granger was in the middle of spending battles inside her party. She delivered on a number of projects important to Fort Worth, the Panther Island slash Center City Flood Control Project, defense funding, and the USS Fort Worth, the city's namesake ship. She's the ship's sponsor that she has protected from U.S. Navy cost cutters. Oh, thank goodness. I'm sure every citizen of Fort Worth thinks that is Extremely important. Ooh, our city's name is on a ship. Huh, we can't let that go. Granger also has championed the federal government's use of the F-35 fighter jet, a plane built at Fort Worth's Lockheed Martin facility. Some of her top donors are from the defense and air transport industries, Bloomberg reports. She's the most powerful Texan we've got, said Ben Barnes a lobbyist and former lieutenant governor of Texas who is a Democrat, but has known and admired Granger for years. I hope she runs. And I guess this quote must have been from before she decided not to run. For decades, Granger was the public face of Panther Island, a $1.16 billion flood control project 
that will reroute part of the Trinity River and create hundreds of acres of riverfront development near downtown Fort Worth. So military industrial complex, $1.16 billion project for quote unquote flood control in order to reroute a river so that riverfront development can happen. These are the sorts of things that very, very wealthy people will purchase members of Congress to accomplish that don't actually help her constituents really at all. Thomas Marshall, a political science professor at the University of Texas at Arlington, said Granger's absence will leave a big void for Fort Worth and Congress. He described Granger as a giant in the Texas delegation. She helped Fort Worth punch above its weight, Marshall said. A longtime member of the Appropriations Committee, Granger had put out the word earlier this year that she wanted a waiver from GOP rules that limit committee leadership to three consecutive two-year terms so as to be able to serve another term as chair if the GOP holds the House in 2024 or serve as the ranking member if Republicans don't. That decision is up to the speaker who has influence on the selection of committee chairs, but wouldn't be made until next year. So Granger wanted to have an exception made for her so she could continue to chair the Appropriations Committee in a term beginning in 2025. She's already 80. She's been in Congress for 15 terms. Her 16th term, she wanted an exception made. So she could continue to chair the Appropriations Committee, the committee that decides how the federal government's money is spent. And by the federal government's money, of course, I mean the American taxpayers money and more accurately, money that the global regime just invents from nothing. The fiat currency, the value of which relies on the extension of the indentured servitude of the American people indefinitely so that people like Kay Granger can continue investing the quote unquote federal government's money into projects that her constituents don't really need. But hey, a lot of people get rich in the process of wasting other people's money. And that's what's important. You've got to redistribute the wealth the conservative way, which is take it from everybody and give it to very, very rich people. And naturally, that's the way that the more overt communists do it as well. But they say it's good based on the fact that they take everybody's money and give some to poor people while they give the rest to rich people. They both give tons and tons of money to rich people, but Democrats need extra money so that they can give a little bit to poor people so they don't feel bad about stealing everyone's money and giving it to rich people. The article contains another interesting quote from Marshall. This is the political science professor at University of Texas, Arlington. Marshall expects a crowd of Republicans to vie for Granger's seat and for a lot of money to pour into the safe GOP district. Republican John O'Shea already has announced for the seat. And John O'Shea is essentially a shoe in That is the guy running on the more MAGA platform. Kay Granger is being removed essentially by MAGA. This is a member of the corrupt Republican establishment who does not have a future. Marshall said, when you look at that field of candidates, who are these people? And are they prepared to make this their end of career commitment for the next 25 or 30 years? So this is what is expected from political science professors. A congressman needs to be able to commit 
to being in Congress for 25 to 30 years, an end of career commitment. Hey, Congressman, this is how you're going to spend the rest of your life. All of this is just standard operating procedure now. Granger's political career began on Fort Worth's zoning commission. From there, she was elected to Fort Worth City Council, and she became the first woman to serve as the city's mayor in 1991. In Congress, she was the only Republican woman in the Texas delegation from the time she was elected in 1996 to 2020 when Representative Beth Van Dyne of Irving was elected. And as always, it feels so much better when a woman is in the position to be completely and totally corrupt and waste her constituents' money. It's just better that way. That is what we call progress. And Kay Granger wasn't the only establishment Republican who decided this week that their time was up. This is from CNN yesterday. Republican Representative Ken Buck will not seek re-election. Republican Ken Buck, a hardline conservative, LOL, who has clashed with his own party, will not seek re-election, he announced Wednesday. Our movement has always been fueled by immutable truths about human nature, individual liberty, and economic freedoms, the Colorado Republican said in his video announcement. The Republican Party of today, however, is ignoring self-evident truths about the rule of law and limited government in exchange for self-serving lies. He sounds like anyone on MSNBC, which is funny because he has been spending weeks now appearing on MSNBC, as have many establishment Republicans, especially Ron DeSantis. Buck cited stagnation in Congress and his party's election denialism as driving factors in his decision not to run in 2024. I have been here nine years and Congress refuses to deal with the big issues that we need to deal with, he told Caitlin Collins of CNN pointing to the sustainability of Social Security and Medicare and cutting government spending. You have to love when they describe people as hardline conservatives just because they have these Republicans on their airwaves and continue to tell their audience over and over again, this is what a hardline conservative looks like. This is a very staunch conservative. They use that to describe Ken Buck. They use it to describe Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney, all of those types. They'll describe them as very staunch, lifelong conservatives, and then they will figure out ways to soften it up. They'll say he's more moderate on certain social issues or despite his staunch conservatism, he departs from the extreme MAGA wing of his party. They're always trying to define who the quote unquote real conservatives are much in the way the Ron DeSantis campaign does, while consistently being people who ignore the fact that the country was usurped through a series of stolen elections and the elections haven't been fixed. Very conservative. In addition to that, Republicans who have answers to these issues and are at least aware of them and hopefully will work on them someday have a huge credibility problem because we continue to talk about and lie about the 2020 election, as if it was stolen, as if Joe Biden wasn't the real winner of that election, Buck said on The Source. I don't think we can have the credibility we need with the American public if we continue the lies that we are now telling. Now, that sentence is absolutely right. Totally out of context 
for what Buck is saying and Buck's belief system. But that sentence is literally perfect. I don't think we can have the credibility we need with the American public if we continue the lies that we are now telling. Hey, congrats, Ken. You accidentally said something true. The American public, by and large, has understood by this point that our elections are routinely stolen, often in broad daylight, while everyone is watching and the entire public is gaslighted by the media and by politicians. We are told that because one candidate from one side of the unit party is not contesting the results of the election, that the other candidate from the other side of the unit party must have therefore won legitimately. There's no contest. Therefore, that means everything in the election went just fine because, you know, Republicans and Democrats, they just really hate each other. Don't get along about anything. It's a, a fight to the death, politically speaking, all the time. So if someone stole the election, surely the other candidate would be contesting it. Except that's not true. And Ken Buck certainly knows it's not true. And Ken Buck very likely is the beneficiary of stolen elections, not necessarily in the general election, but in the primaries, because primaries are stolen. And we're going to get to an example of that in just a little bit. Buck, a former prosecutor with the Department of Justice, was first elected to Congress in 2014 after an unsuccessful 2010 run for Senate. While a member of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus, he's broken with his party in recent years on several key issues and become an outspoken critic of former President Donald Trump in the wake of the 2020 election. And there it is. His eastern Colorado district is solidly red, and GOP leaders had floated possible candidates to potentially primary him, sources told CNN in September, an effort now saved by Bucks bowing out of the race. So two establishment conservatives facing primaries bow out and decide they're not going to run. Well, what side were they going to be primaried from? Were they going to be primaried because they were too conservative to America first? No, of course not. They were primaried because they are rhinos. And that's why the articles describing Kay Granger, for instance, include glowing quotes from Democrats. In the Washington Post's article on Granger's retirement, they note Granger was praised by lawmakers on both sides of the aisle after her announcement. Representative Mario Diaz Balart, a fellow Appropriations Committee member and another Republican who steadfastly opposed Jordan for Speaker, called Granger an esteemed colleague and dear friend. She stands as one of the most formidable, principled, and influential members of Congress. Diaz Ballart wrote in a post on X. Austin Fluger, Republican representative from Texas, called Granger an inspiration. And Representative Jasmine Crockett, a Democrat from Texas, who represents a district adjacent to Granger's district, described her as, quote, a barrier breaker who had given a, quote, lifetime of service to the people of North Texas. And it always strikes me as strange at this point, knowing how I used to think about politics and observing how supporters of the Uniparty continue to think about politics, that they think both parties really liking someone means that person must be doing a good job, a fair and balanced job, just serving the constituents, serving the country as a whole, not playing those partisan politics. At this point, it has just become completely and totally obvious that when politicians are being praised by both sides of this uniparty controlled opposition dynamic, that just means they are complete 
and total sellouts, absolute committed servants of the global regime and its agenda. Back to CNN. He was one of the eight Republican members who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy over the speaker's decision to pass a clean spending bill to avoid a government shutdown without the deep spending cuts sought by conservatives. And Buck repeatedly voted against Jim Jordan for House Speaker last month, contributing to the Ohio Republicans' failure to win the speaker's gavel. Buck, who serves on the House Judiciary and Foreign Affairs Committees, is one of several House Republicans standing in the way of the right's push to impeach President Biden. While he has maintained that he is open to impeachment if he sees evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, he's also said he doesn't believe the House has produced any evidence that Biden profited off of his son's foreign business deals, which the president has denied. Notably, Buck, a senior member on one of the committees helping to oversee the impeachment inquiry, has cast doubt on whether the evidence even exists. Oh, yes, it's a mystery. Buck also put himself at odds with leadership last Congress when he teamed up with Democrats on antitrust legislation and more recently for criticizing Trump's legal issues and third presidential campaign. He has faced blowback from some in his party for voting to certify the 2020 election results and defending Trump critic, former Republican representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, the daughter of his former boss, Dick Cheney, who he served under when the former vice president was a congressman, according to his office. In his announcement Wednesday, Buck railed against Republican leaders he said were creating stumbling blocks for the party by, quote, lying to America, claiming the 2020 election was stolen, describing January 6th as an unguided tour of the Capitol, and asserting that the ensuing prosecutions are a weaponization of our justice system. It is impossible for the Republican Party to confront our problems and offer a course correction for the future while being obsessively fixated on retribution and vengeance for contrived injustices of the past. So that's pretty incredible. That is like a laundry list of all of the clearest signals of regime complicity in opposing the America first agenda, the populist agenda, Donald Trump, Donald Trump supporters. Besides the absolute debacle in Ukraine and the burgeoning debacle in the Middle East, that was basically every single issue over which the American people and conservative Americans want to remove establishment Republicans, foremost among those being, of course, election fraud. It is amazing that this is the note these people choose to go out on, as if history will not look back on them in shame. This should be seen, though, as a major signal. These people know elections are stolen. They are very likely the beneficiaries of stolen primaries. And even with that knowledge, they either understand they're not going to be able to steal it this time around, or if they would be successfully able to steal it, they couldn't cover it in a narrative sense because the people in their district would never believe it. And that can potentially cause an even bigger problem. From a regime perspective, it's quite possible that the regime would prefer to have a more MAGA, a more America first candidate win in the primary and then just hand that seat over to a Democrat in the general through stolen elections than having the watchful eye of the public on a primary process and stealing it there. It seems that they must 
also think they have a better shot of selling to the American public in general, that Democrats could be winning these seats and supporting that with the narrative that the country just still rejects America first candidates, MAGA candidates. So Ken Buck has decided to take his ball and go home because the members of his Republican conference are election deniers, and they are, after three years, just still unwilling to stop lying about the results of the 2020 election. And as everyone who supports the regime, Ken Buck insinuates that all of those people are telling the big lie. They have nothing to back up their claims. Everybody knows that Joe Biden really did receive 81 million real lawful American votes, and they're just willing to lie about it for political advantage. We continue to be told that somehow the election denial, in quotes, position provides a political advantage or some advantage in life. But that is absolutely crazy. Being an election denier actually gets you censored by the government and pursued by the Department of Justice. It's one of the most heavily censored positions in American society for the last three plus years. And the claim is that it's politically advantageous to be an election denier. Now, if that claim is true, what does that mean? How overwhelming must the popular opinion be that the elections are stolen to be able to provide a political advantage to election denier candidates while that position is being prosecuted, censored, and opposed by all of the wealthy donors on, quote unquote, both sides of the political aisle. Ken Buck is essentially saying that he is afraid of Republican voters because they believe the elections are stolen. If Ken Buck is representing a constituency of Republican voters who believe that the elections are stolen and Ken Buck is telling them the elections are not stolen without checking, what does that tell Ken Buck's constituents about Ken Buck? This is how these situations should be looked at. Ken Buck is not in the position of being an expert on the issue. He is not an authority on election fraud simply by being a congressman. To the extent that he has deep knowledge of the election fraud system, he's then just clearly lying about it. It's not like Ken Buck can go and produce the evidence of Joe Biden's 81 million real lawful American votes. He can't produce evidence of the number of them. He can't produce evidence of the reality of those votes, of the lawfulness of those votes. And he can't produce evidence that all of those votes were cast by eligible American voters. Ken Buck cannot support with evidence in any way the claim that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter. He cannot do that. He's not an authority on election fraud. He's not an expert on election fraud. You can't just take his word for it because he is a congressman. This is one of the aspects of the total inversion within the false reality in how we view politics. We don't have to listen to politicians at all. They have to listen to us. That's how the job works. We are not their loyal and abiding subjects. They don't get to tell us how to think, how to feel, how to act. 
None of those things are part of a congressman's job. A congressman's job is to represent that congressman's constituents. If Ken Buck thinks that his constituents believe our elections are all good, why isn't he staying and fighting the election deniers in his party? Instead, he's saying he's leaving because of the election deniers in the party, in the Congress. He can't serve in that body with them, even though his constituents elect him to office, right? Don't his constituents want a fighter in Congress who's going to take on the election deniers? Apparently, the answer is no. So the Republicans in the Congress are election deniers, and Ken Buck's constituents are election deniers, and Ken Buck is the only one who knows that our elections really are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter. Nice call, Ken. You probably nailed it. Now, very interesting news coming out of Connecticut last night. There have been some people following this particular case for a little while now, and we'll get to the great Behizzi's posts on X and his coverage of this issue. But first, this is from ctexaminer.com out of Connecticut. That's obviously Connecticut Examiner. The headline from last night, court overturns Ganim win in Bridgeport primary, calling evidence of fraud shocking. A judge ruled on Wednesday to overturn the city's Democratic primary election, initially won by incumbent mayor Joe Ganim, following claims of absentee ballot fraud by his opponent, John Gomez. After two weeks of evidentiary hearings for Gomez's absentee ballot fraud lawsuit, Judge William Clark ordered a new Democratic primary based on 180 pieces of evidence presented by Gomez's legal counsel. In the 37-page ruling, Clark said the video footage presented by Bill Bloss, Gomez's attorney, was particularly alarming. Mr. Ganim was also correct to be shocked at what he saw on the video clips in evidence that were shown to him while he was on the witness stand, Clark wrote. The videos are shocking to the court and should be shocking to all the parties. Ganim was one of the many city officials called to the Fairfield Judicial District Superior Courthouse for questioning, along with Wanda Geeter Pataki, vice chair of the Bridgeport Democratic Town Committee and operations specialist for the city, and Anita Martinez, a former city council member accused by Gomez of stuffing ballot drop boxes. At the witness stand, Ganim told the court he was shocked by an 18-minute video subpoenaed by Gomez from Bridgeport Police that appeared to show 12 instances of Geeter Pataki either depositing stacks of ballots herself or handing ballots to others from behind her reception desk and four instances of Martinez dropping off ballots. Asked about the footage during the hearings, both Geeter Pataki and Martinez asserted their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Ganim, who appeared to win the primary by 250 votes after a count of absentee ballots, denied any involvement in the alleged fraud. Under state election law, absentee ballots may only be returned by the ballot applicant, a family member, a police officer, an election official, or a caretaker. Clark said the footage provides direct evidence that state law was violated when unauthorized partisans handled and submitted ballots. In addition to the police footage, Bloss argued in court that many of the absentee ballots 
should never have been counted given that they were improperly stamped. And the article goes on and on. The election fraud system on full display in a Democrat Party primary in Connecticut. That is the exact sort of thing that we are routinely told by communists, liars, and retards does not happen in American elections. There's no proof, no evidence, baseless claims. This sort of thing never happens. Oh yeah, it happens all the time. And we always have this stuff reframed as, are you saying Democrats steal elections? Well, then why didn't Democrats steal all the elections? Well, no, that's not the claim. The claim is that the Uniparty steals elections on behalf of candidates in the Uniparty on both sides of that false dichotomy, that Democrat versus Republican controlled opposition dynamic, the left, right, red, blue dichotomy that no longer matters in American politics. It is only about the regime versus the people. It is not at all about Democrat versus Republican. Elections are stolen on behalf of both sides of the Uniparty, the Uniparty right and the Uniparty left. And it should be extra clear that it's not about Democrat versus Republican when they are stealing elections within their own party races. Now, let's go over to X, formerly Twitter. And our friend George, this is at Behizzy Tweets, B-E-H-I-Z-Y. He is a great follow when it comes to election fraud stuff and a good buddy of our friend CanCon. Breaking a Democratic judge in Connecticut has overturned the results of the mayoral primary election in Bridgeport and ordered a new election be held after bombshell video evidence of election fraud was found. Quote, the volume of ballots so mishandled is such that it calls the result of the primary election into serious doubt and leaves the court unable to determine the legitimate result of the primary, Judge Clark wrote in his ruling, adding that the videos, quote, are shocking to the court and should be shocking to all the parties. Judges across the country now have a case to go off of when ruling in future mail-in ballot fraud cases. In the thread below, I will note the critical moments from this massive story. This is the outrageous video of the Democrat clerk stuffing illegal ballots into the city drop box and visiting it multiple times in one day. The video was leaked by a whistleblower inside the city and Gateway Pundit helped share it with the world. And you can see this video for yourself if you go to the X platform, go to at Behizzy tweets and his posts from last evening, November 1st. He goes on. After that video was released, John Gomez, the cheated candidate in the race, held a press conference exposing the mountain load of evidence they had that the election was stolen from him. His team also promised to challenge the results in court, and he has video of that press conference as well. As if there wasn't already enough evidence against them, the city's registrar of voters admitted under oath in court that she had been violating the law on mail-in ballots for years. She has been in her position for over 20 years. And here is the video of that testimony. And were you aware that the Secretary of the State says that an outer envelope, uh, the endorsement of the town clerk must show the date, the precise time the clerk received the ballot and the clerk's signature? Are you aware of that? And uh, were you aware that if the, the Secretary of the State says in Exhibit 126, if an outer envelope does not substantially comply with this requirement, the ballot cannot be counted? 
Did you know that? Now I do. Okay, I guess maybe I should ask, did you know that? Did you know that on September 12th? No, I didn't. And uh, did you ever instruct your absentee ballot moderator that that was the rule? We go over the manual. You went over his manual with the absentee ballot yeah. moderator? Well, I, you know, we, we go through the manual, but you know our past practices. So yeah. past, past practices were in your office, a registrar of voters, a Democratic registrar of voters office was not to require a signature on the clerk's and Oh, no, I know. Um, actually, this is um, new to me about the signature. I'm not clear, so that means I haven't read the book thoroughly and properly like I should have in instance, in this instance. Okay, well, you, you, you agree that what I'm showing you here uh, in Exhibit 2, 101-62, does not include a signature of Mr. Clements, right? Not this one, does Right. And if we, if I can ask you to take a look at 128A at 69, I can look at the stamp on this one. This is a, an absentee ballot application um, received by the town clerk. All right, uh, Ms. Howard, you would agree that that particular stamp does have a facsimile signature of the town clerk, Charles D. Clemens Jr., right? Yes. And the one that I showed you just the last one I showed you on the absentee ballot out of envelope did not have a signature, did it? And so would you agree that under the Secretary of State's handbook here, step two, that the, that the particular outer envelope with the stamp without the clerk's signature should not have been counted? Objection to form your honor, call for speculation. She was not, as already testified, she was not she's, she's in charge. Were you in charge? I'll ask it this way. You were, you were in charge of, of the counting of all of the ballots. That was your overall job, right? The overall job is to moderate. I oversee the election. I provide um, poll workers to, to um, oversee the, the uh, ballots in, in the polling precincts. So they are required to follow their steps. So. Including step two, the endorsement has to have a signature. Correct. And you told uh, the absentee ballot moderator that before the primary? No, I didn't tell him that. No, I did not. Did you have any discussion with him about that? No, I did not. Did you go through the, the, the absentee ballot manual with him? No. Well, on this day he went through the manual, but we just breezed through because we went through our past practice, like I said, through our past practice. That, that I didn't recognize that they won't stamp without its signature. So she's essentially testifying to the fact that they did not go through the manual properly. That's the excuse. Well, you know, we had the manual and we go through the manual, but we just don't go, I guess, all the way through the manual. And whoops, sometimes mistakes are made. And right there, you have a perfect example of how seriously elections in our country are taken. By and large, this is what election workers are around the country have been doing plenty of examples of this. We've discussed many of them over the years. You could spend days digging through the reports and accounts of election workers simply not doing what they're supposed to do. And people really do need to understand that in order for elections to be held lawfully, in order for votes to be lawful, the process by which votes become lawful according to the election laws of the state, 
must be stringently followed. That's the entire point of the laws being put in place in the first place. If people aren't following the laws of elections because there are too many and they're too complicated, that means the system by which we hold elections is too complicated and is not effective and cannot produce lawful outcomes because it is beyond the people working the elections to actually follow the election laws. That means that we have created a system that invites manipulation and abuse and leads to fraudulent outcomes. Now, the people in position of signing off on the steps of these elections and on certifying these elections, if those people are aware that the election system is too complicated for the election workers and election officials to follow, then how are they going to put their reputations on the line by signing off on these uncertifiable elections? And of course, they always fall back on the same sorts of arguments, human error, and whoops. And oh, I guess we missed that thing. And we are constantly sold the idea that election workers would never intentionally defraud the American people, defraud the voters in their community by making themselves complicit in stolen elections and participating in the election steal. Now that, first of all, is not true. But even if it was true, it wouldn't matter. These people have a fiduciary duty they have an ethical obligation and a legal obligation to see to it that the laws put in place are actually followed when running elections. And they're not even doing the basic stuff. They're not even going all the way through the manual. And this is something simple. Checking signatures. That should be obvious. That is one of the only security mechanisms in the process. If you don't check the signature, if you don't actually make sure that the signatures match, if you don't care that there's not a signature there at all, then you're not following the law in conducting the election. And that election cannot and should not be certified. All of this really is and really should be in the minds of the American public this simple. If the laws aren't followed, the elections can't be certified. If someone certifies those elections anyway, that's fraud. You don't need to show the entire system. You don't need to produce fraudulent ballots. You don't need to do any of that. You need to show that the law is not being followed and it has to be followed. And that is why we ultimately get the argument that, well, it's too late now. The person has been certified as the winner. The person is in office. There's nothing we can do. What do you want us to reverse the whole election just because someone didn't follow the law in this or that instance? The answer is absolutely 100% yes. That is exactly what I want. And that is exactly what people should want. If the elections are not held according to the law, then we cannot respect the outcomes, the reported outcomes of those elections and the law and the courts shouldn't respect it either. We should not have people in office who are governing without the consent of the governed. These people have no right or ability to create laws that we must follow, especially when it's clear that they don't follow the law themselves and that they have achieved their positions of power through this sort of lawlessness. And then we're being attacked and maligned and prosecuted and censored for stating the obvious which is that there is a systemic problem in our elections and far too many election officials are not trained and not incentivized in any way to actually follow the law. And we're just going to keep on having elections 
with this system and expecting them to produce results. And then we are going to hold illegitimate primaries and an illegitimate election and then call people the winners in this rigged election system. And then, of course, what do we get from election fraud deniers? Well, this is just a uh, primary mayoral race in Connecticut. This doesn't mean that this happens all around the country. And you can show them five examples or 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 or 1,000, and they make the same argument. You can't prove this happens everywhere around the country. Once there gets to be enough of them, then it's, you can't prove this is a system and coordinated. And then once you can show them that there are actually connections between all of these things and draw out a bigger system, then they'll just revert back to one of the other arguments that it's too late or it doesn't matter. Or if you want things to change, you need to win elections in that rigged system. It is just a never ending stream of bullshit to say that election fraud doesn't matter. They go so far past the point at which election fraud or even just lawlessness needs to be proven in order to deny what is clear and obvious in everyone's faces and supported with absolutely overwhelming evidence. There is no reason in the world to trust that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter. Without that, the government governs without consent and has no ability or right to be telling us how we need to live our lives or how much money we need to give them for the privilege of living our lives. We cannot continue to live as subjects. These elections do not reflect the will and intent of the American voter, and there is no reason whatsoever to believe that they do or that they can under this system. If the system and the rules and the regulations and the laws are too complicated to navigate, then the system must be abandoned, period. Any results produced by this system should be totally ignored. And too often people react in horror like, what are we going to have? No government? And the answer is, yeah, we're going to have no government until we can figure this stuff out. For sure, that's what's going to happen. We do not need rulers. We need representatives. That's what our constitution was designed to produce. Our elections have not produced representatives. Our elections have selected rulers on someone else's behalf. People who are there to tell us what we must do and create laws that we must follow. It's like if you find out that your babysitter is poisoning your kids, you don't say, well, you know, what are we going to do? Have no babysitter? Yeah, that's right. You're going to go with no babysitter rather than the one who poisons your kids until you're able to find a babysitter who doesn't. And if you can't find a babysitter who doesn't, well, then you just can't leave your kids. That's kind of just how it works with, you know, taking responsibility. But people don't want responsibility. And the people collectively for most of our history up till this very moment have not wanted responsibility. The percentage of people who actually are willing to take on that responsibility with integrity has been far too small for far too long. And that is all of our fault, including my own. But the point is not to place blame. We can take the blame. We can try to do better as we should. But this isn't an exercise in blame placing. This is an exercise in saying we absolutely do have to do this or our alternative is the babysitter who poisons the kids.
Now, we talked a bit the other day about George Soros's malign influence and Elon Musk appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast this week and discussed George Soros and his effect on our election system. And Soros, I don't know. I mean, he had a very difficult upbringing. Um, and uh, I, in my opinion, he fundamentally hates humanity. That's my opinion. Really? Yeah. I mean, well, he's doing things that erode the fabric of civilization. You know, uh, getting DAs elected who refuse to prosecute crime. That's part of the problem in San Francisco and L.A. and much of other cities. So why would you do that? Was it humanity or is it just the United States as a whole? I mean, is I mean he he's pushing things places? to other countries, too. He's not doing just the here. same thing? Yeah. Now, George at this point is pretty old. I mean, he's not, uh, you know, he's basically a bit senile at this point. But, I mean, he... He, and he's, he's, a, he's very smart, um, and he's very good at arbitrage. You know, famously, he uh, shorted the British pound. That's sort of how I, uh, I think he made his first uh, money, was shorting the pound. Um, so he's, he's good at spotting, uh, basically, arbitrage, like spotting value for money that other people don't see. So uh, one of the things he noticed was that, in, in, that, that the value for money in local races is much higher than it is in national races. So the lowest value for money is a presidential race. Then next lowest value for money is a Senate race, then a Congress, and then, but once you get to sort of city and state district attorneys, um, the value for money is extremely good. And uh, Soros realized that you don't actually need to change the laws, you just need to change how they're enforced. If nobody chooses to enforce the law or the laws are differentially enforced, it's like changing the so he's laying it out pretty well there. Soros puts his money into elections at the local level, the city level, the state level, the federal level. But the real value comes at the local level. The amount of money you spend compared to the results you're able to achieve is the best return on investment. And once he has put all those people in place, well, then they can just skip on enforcing any of the laws. If district attorneys aren't going to prosecute, then people who might be violating the law in their jurisdiction simply get away with it and know they can get away with it. And a part of that that is kind of an aside, but maybe even more depressing is if they know they can get away with it and they are incentivized to break the law on behalf of the people and the organizations who are not going to prosecute them, then they are actually permanently compromised because at any point they can be prosecuted for that thing they have done on the promise that they would never be prosecuted for doing it because the people who might prosecute them are, quote unquote, on the same side. So that is another aspect that cannot be ignored. But Soros influences elections to put all these people in place. Then these people begin changing the law or refusing to enforce the law. And over time, the system is converted into the sort of system we have now that exists only to exploit the system the people believe they have. There is no doubt that George Soros hates humanity. George Soros has a project that he says will benefit humanity. That is how he markets it. But everything he does shows an absolute disdain 
for people, especially normal people, and their ability to guide their lives and then collectively guide the future of the world. George Soros does not see the world that way. George Soros is explicitly committed to the global regime's depopulation agenda and everything that goes along with that, including and especially the climate change agenda. We will return to Elon in just a moment, but one more election fraud story from this week. Darren Beatty's Revolver News is highlighting an election issue from New Jersey. The headline in Revolver, multiple New Jersey Dems charged with election fraud crimes involving mail-in ballots. And the Revolver article cites Colin Rugg on X, formerly Twitter. He says, multiple New Jersey Democrats have been charged with election fraud crimes involving mail-in ballots. Patterson City Council President Alex Mendez was indicted for alleged crimes committed during the 2020 election. Mendez allegedly supervised an operation that stole mail-in ballots from mailboxes and replaced the ones that were not for him. His wife and two others were also charged. New Jersey Attorney General Matt Platkin says Mendez was seen emptying a, quote, large heavy bag completely filled with ballots into a mailbox. The defendants are accused of attempting to rig an election in their favor and to deprive the voters of Patterson of having their voices heard, Platkin said. The functioning of democracy relies on voters' trust that their votes count and those votes determine the outcomes of elections. Mendez was able to commit this alleged fraud due to the fact that all ballots were mail-in, thanks to the pandemic. The photos show Mendez with high-profile Democrats, including Bill Clinton, Cory Booker, and Whoopi Goldberg. So how about that? Universal mail-in balloting in 2020 due to the very deadly pandemic opened the opportunities for fraud. The Revolver article also cites just the news from the 28th of October. Before the May 2020 election, in which Mendez was running for city council, he allegedly collected many mail-in ballots from households over several days in violation of state law, according to the attorney general's office. While New Jersey law allows a bearer to return a completed ballot for a voter, candidates in elections are not allowed to collect and return ballots for the voters in the district of the race they are running in. According to Platkin's office, Mendez's campaign allegedly collected ballots that were not sealed by voters and examined them at the campaign headquarters to see if they were cast for Mendez. Ballots that were not cast for Mendez were allegedly destroyed and replaced with a ballot for him. The replacement ballots were allegedly stolen from voters' mailboxes. Isn't that amazing? They just went around and collected all those extra mail-in ballots. You got to wonder if some of those mail-in ballots they collected were going to be voted by real voters who then showed up in person and were told that they already voted. Remember how many times that happened in 2020? There were reports of that everywhere. One of Mendez's associates allegedly took ballots from mailboxes in areas that were known to have many supporters of Mendez's opponent, the attorney general's office said. Also, if voters turned over ballots that were incomplete, Mendez's campaign workers would allegedly complete them. About a week before the May 2020 election, Mendez allegedly observed someone empty a large bag filled with ballots into a mailbox in the neighboring municipality of Halidon, according to Platkin's office. 
Approximately a week later, Mendez's campaign attorney sent a letter to the Passaic County Board of Elections to urge them to count the ballots from Halidon, despite allegedly knowing that they had been illegally obtained and submitted to the county. Does this sound like an isolated incident or a series of isolated incidents. Does this sound like some random voter just being overzealous about a certain candidate and trying to insert fraudulent ballots? The sort of thing that just one rogue person does not representative of any sort of widespread problem. Nah, that's not what this sounds like. This is systemic abuse and blatant criminality in our elections of the sort that we have evidenced all over the country. And what do the election fraud deniers say about this? Well, they'd say, well, if you take that evidence to court and then the courts decide that you're right and say that these are stolen votes and that the election was stolen and then overturn that election, then and only then does this constitute evidence of election fraud. It is totally illogical. It is totally dishonest. But that doesn't stop them at all because they will do whatever they have to do, twist whatever logic, reverse the thinking about what constitutes evidence in the first place. They don't care. They will deny the claims no matter what, which is why it's not worth arguing with them online about election fraud. If someone online is arguing that our elections are actually free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter, that person has not checked, or if they have checked, is either stupid or lying. There is no other possibility. There is no possibility that someone checked deeply to see whether or not our elections are stolen or our elections are uncertifiable or our elections contain an unknown number of totally lawless votes or fake votes or votes from non-Americans or ineligible Americans. It is not possible to come to that conclusion after having checked to see whether or not that's the case. And most of the people who deny election fraud have not checked. What they have done is a very thorough job of figuring out how to argue their way out of, to their satisfaction, their way out of individual claims made by people questioning our elections. The cumulative effect of all those claims should be to paint the very clear picture that our elections are not free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results do not accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter. But they don't care about that. They want to argue each and every individual specific claim until they believe they have shown and created enough doubt to invalidate the claim. And at that point, they say, well, you can't make that claim. They do that for every single claim. And then they say no evidence, baseless claims. That's not how any of this works. And there is no point in getting yourself into one of those cycles with these sorts of people. It does not matter at all whether or not they think there is evidence of election fraud. Their opinion about election fraud does not matter at all. It has no effect on reality. It should not have any effect on you, except maybe you can react with sadness and disappointment, understanding, oh, here is yet another communist traitor to America and someone who is very clearly extraordinarily dishonest and not very bright. There is no point 
in continuing to argue about election fraud online. Just let them believe what they like. They do not affect reality. If people are open to hearing about the election fraud system, then go ahead and tell them if you want. But even then, the preferable response is to tell them to go check for themselves so they actually have to exert the effort and learn for themselves. Now, imagine where we would be on all this if people had taken these claims seriously and had an environment in which they could share these claims and share what they were learning with other people. Well, the social media platforms have made that as difficult as they can over the last three years. Extraordinary levels of censorship and banning and shadow banning and massive coordinated campaigns to shout down anyone bringing up these claims and try to publicly shame people and damage their reputations, make them seem like they lack all credibility so that the claims being made, the information being shared can simply be dismissed. That is what we have dealt with now for three years. And we have been told by our betters on the uniparty right and the uniparty left that all of that censorship is okay because the social media companies are private companies. Well, let's return to Elon on the Joe Rogan experience the other day because he addressed exactly that claim. That was one of the things about the old Twitter was the propaganda and yeah. the adherence to whatever the CDC was saying and the dismissing of legitimate scientists, guys like uh, Jay Bhattacharya from uh, yeah. Stanford and legit guys. Yes. And they were suppressing them and even banning them. They banned Alex Berenson. I mean, it's just, it was wild. They banned Alex for essentially reading peer-reviewed papers. Yeah. No, I, I mean, all, all Twitter was basically an arm of the government. Yeah. So was that shocking? Like, what was that like? Is that to me, that was the most bizarre was the Twitter files when you let Schellenberger yeah. and Matt Taibbi and all those guys get in the Twitter and the, the response where Matt Taibbi gets audited. I mean, which is just wild. I mean, it's just so blatant and so in your face. Yeah, it's weird. No, I, I mean, the re yeah, the, the degree to which and, and by, by the way, Jack didn't really know know this, but the degree to which Twitter was simply um, an arm of the government was not well understood by the public. And uh, it, it was, there was no, it was whatever the official government, I mean, it was like Pravda, basically. Um, you know, it's a state publication is the way to think of old Twitter. It was a state publication. And was the justification from their perspective that they are progressive liberals, they have the right intentions, it's important that they stay in power, the progressive liberals stay in government and power, because this is, the, this is their... There, there was, there was uh, basically oppression of um, any, any views that would even, I would say, be considered middle of the road. Um, but certainly anything on the, the right, I'm not talking about like, like far right, I'm just talking mildly right, the people like Republicans were suppressed at 10 times the rate of Democrats. Um, now, that's because uh, old Twitter was fundamentally controlled by the far left. It was like completely controlled by the, the, the far left. And th that's why I say like, you know, the, like San Francisco Berkeley is a niche ideology. It's hard to say like, is there a place that's more far left than San Francisco Berkeley? Maybe Portland. Maybe Portland, but it's like it's a right there. It's yeah, it's like it's equivalent. those two places 
out of the, the most far left places uh, in America. Yes. Um, so f- uh, from their standpoint, everything is to the right, <laughs> including moderates. Right, right. So that now, if, 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 if you internalize a far left position, uh, everything seems wrong to you that, if, that is not far left. Right. And so they naturally oppressed any, anything that didn't agree with their views. That's why I say that it was an accidental far left information weapon. So, uh, is it, 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 because it's, it's like Silicon Valley attracts the smartest engineers, the smartest sort of technologists and programmers from around the world. Um, they created an information weapon that was then harnessed by the far left, who could not themselves create the weapon, but happened to be co-located where the technologists were. Mm. And happened to be aligned politically with the people that possessed it. The technologists uh, generally are moderate, maybe moderate left, but they're they're not they're, they're they're not far left. That's why I say San Francisco, Berkeley. It's, it's it doesn't even extend to South San Francisco or even to Palo Alto. So so SF Berkeley is the most far left. Um, perhaps you know in a competition with Portland, but I'd say SF Berkeley is more far left even than Portland. That like literally in America, it's we're talking about an area that's maybe a ten mile radius, and so the, the normally the the effects, the negative effects of a far left ideology that is would be geographically limited to a to ten mile radius. That's like not it's small like the, so so any any bad effects of that ideology would be geographically constrained under normal circumstances and have been in the past. But when you have uh, basically a, technolo- a technological megaphone, which, w- which was Twitter and, and social media in general, suddenly you, the, the far left are handed a megaphone to earth, a, a, a te- a, an incredibly powerful technology weapon that they themselves could not create, but they happen to be co-located with the technologists who created it by accident. Now, if you have been a longtime listener to this show for two years or three years, you will have heard absolutely everything Elon Musk just said years ago to standard issue villagers in our country. That is something that's not even true, despite Elon Musk saying it. And it definitely wasn't true until Elon Musk said it. So there are some edgier, more advanced standard issue villagers who are still years behind on an informational timeline. They believe that what's happening on television is what's really happening and in real time. Those people, some of them believe now Elon has disclosed that Twitter was never really a private company. It's breaking news right now. Whoa. Did you hear what Elon Musk said about Twitter? And then there are some standard issue villagers who are even further behind the sorts of people who are still getting vaccinated. Those people believe that Elon Musk is a conspiracy theorist and a white supremacist and all the other things. And so right now he is just trying to make excuses for his company or something like that. At some point, people might decide that it actually is better to know what is going on and what might happen in the future years ago 
than it is to find out all this stuff right now, think it's brand new, and have absolutely no idea how to react to it. But if you want to do that, you have to open your mind a little bit. You have to be a little irresponsible with your language. You have to say things that other people aren't going to say just to see how other people react. It's a different mode of thinking. It is the total abandonment of all information from authority. And you got to come to terms with the fact that you're going to be called stupid. You're going to be called unserious. You're going to be called crazy by a bunch of stupid, unserious, and crazy people. You got to get okay with it. Because the thing is, the only way to get right down deep to the heart of all this stuff is to make the people involved with the problems uncomfortable about being exposed. Present the idea and see how people react. If there are some people getting seriously angry about what should be read as a simple observation about the world... It's probably because they have something riding on no one else having that observation. Now, I'm not saying everybody should go out and be like me in their own personal lives. You got to go live your day and do your thing. And I, of course, have tried to create a life that allows me to act like that all the time. Not everyone has done that. But this is one of those instances where it's very clear that people could have simply known all of this and understood all of this and what it means a long time ago. That's why it's constantly worth speaking out loud in public about potentialities in the future. It's okay to be wrong sometimes. The people who are being guided by the authoritative source are wrong all the time but they think it's okay because everyone else agrees with them or because everyone knows, well, you can't call them stupid for thinking that a lot of people thought that that's what the news was reporting. Hey guys, that's what stupid is. How long do people need to figure out that the TV's not telling them the truth and the TV's not thinking ahead. The TV's job is to create a reality by telling you that what you see isn't what's happening or that what you see is an exceptional case. And this time you shouldn't take it for what it normally means. They will revise the present. They will revise the past and they will create stories about what your future is going to be so that you will accept it and think you're smart to when it arrives. It is 100% a manipulation from power in order to get you to comply. You are literally being told by Elon Musk, the quote unquote owner of Twitter, that Twitter was an information weapon being wielded by the world's most powerful communists. Who has said that more times than I have? Who has said that any times besides me? And I will also give shout outs, just FYI, to the Bitcoin community because they have been tracking Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey like no one else. And our takes on Elon Musk have been compatible, though slightly different. They have been saying many of the same things, including that Jack wasn't involved in all those problems the way people believe he is. And why does that matter? Well, that matters because it makes people look in a completely different way at Jack Dorsey's current projects like Blue Sky and his focus on decentralization and the interaction with Bitcoin. 
that actually makes an enormous difference in how you view Bitcoin and how you view Bitcoin could make an enormous difference in your financial future. It actually does matter in extraordinary ways to be right as fast as you can about important issues. And that's just from their side of the case. From my side, what I would say is that knowing that Twitter was not a private company and has never been a private company makes it very, very clear that Twitter and the government were working together, not as a government and a private company in a public private partnership, as they like to say, and as they admit in Senate testimony, Mayorkas admitted the other day that they were working in public private partnerships with the social media companies. They're not separate entities. It's not a government and a private company. It's essentially the same entity. It is effectually the same entity. That is fascism. And what did they use this information weapon that they owned to do? They used it to censor Americans in violation of the First Amendment. They used it to invade people's privacy and track them. They used the platform and its communication systems to set up all sorts of criminality. I'm sure we're going to hear about lots of blackmail. And then you can go to the porn and the drugs and the sex trafficking and the child sex trafficking facilitated through those government entities. And then you can move beyond that because they have all sorts of corporate partners that they call advertisers. And what do those advertisers do? They exploit the powers of that system, that government entity to move markets and sell goods and make people famous or cancel them. They are literally controlling the world and everyone's perception of it through what Elon Musk describes as an information weapon owned and controlled by global communists. He didn't use those two words, though he may as well have because that's what he's describing. He goes into the long section about Berkeley and Northern California and Silicon Valley and that problem. What do you think that ideology is? Oh, they say it's libertarian. Oh, sure it is. Yeah, the libertarian part is where none of the rules apply to them. The rest of it is just global communism. How would your life and your thoughts and your actions have changed over the past few years if you had known all that? Now, many of you have known all that because you listen to this show or have thought through these things yourself enough or heard someone else talk about it. I don't know who that other person is or could be. I know it's not anyone on the Daily Wire because they just produce trans content all day. I mean, why would they want to talk about this issue in a real way? Right? I mean, the way that things were made it so they could earn a million dollars a week lying to their audiences and take on positions of prominence in the public eye. Why would they want to talk about something that would actually dismantle that system? And of course they wouldn't. They would support that system however they would have to. They would tell people that censorship is okay when it's done by a private company. Even once they know it's done in league with the government. It's still, it's still a private company. We just can't even think about prosecuting private companies for this sort of thing. I mean, just think about how, how many other companies are doing that sort of thing. It's like they have a need 
to protect that system. And of course they do. So why don't they talk about this? Why don't they talk about election fraud? Oh, it's because the whole thing would crumble if people could just tell the truth to one another that they already know, because actually people do have a yearning for truth and authenticity. People do have a yearning for forward thinking rather than listening to Matt Walsh's trans content 24 hours a day. Oh, we know who has the wee-wees and who has the hoo-hahs. We're very smart. Take us serious. Vote for Ron. Donald Trump, he's telling the big lie again. Send all your weapons and money to Ukraine. Now send it to Israel. You don't want to send, you bigot. What are we doing? What are we doing? How can anyone have any idea of what's going on right now and think that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes and that anything other than supporting The immediate return of Donald Trump is morally acceptable in any possible way. This, my friends, is an absolute clown show. I'll be back potentially tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com. And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!